Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mindspace. In this week's show, our guest is Robert Connor, author of Jesus the Sorcerer and the website Magic in Christianity. His articles, The Romans Meet Jesus and Faking Jesus, are featured on thisinfo.com and scribe respectively. We discuss the topic magic and the supernatural in the early church. We also discuss sorcery and demonology in the Greco-Roman culture of that time. The second part of magic and the supernatural in the early church. You know, up until like the 16th century, uh, actually maybe before, maybe in the 2nd century, there was such a thing as uh, honoring someone's grave. Or, or at least, well, they did it for the patriarch and they did it for Joseph and people like that. But having people go to the grave and 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 pray there or remember the person that was kind of a little strange and so to have this obsession with um with a fallen uh martyr such as John the Baptist or even you know, some Christians say that the reason they know that Jesus was resurrected is because there is no other than the empty tomb there is no shrine for the dead Jesus that there that in that culture they would go to his tomb and and honor him somehow and since he left the tomb they only like have the the tomb as a monument so this idea of thinking of 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 john the baptist as someone to to look up to or to remember who who failed in his mission is kind of a strange thing uh to even record in the new testament yeah it would be strange and i think that that's why um Matthew and Luke, you know, obviously edit that story uh, to to change the brunt of it. I think that they were probably probably aware of the interpretation that Mark reports Herod having put on it. But that said, if you look back at the Old Testament in terms of its prohibitions uh, against necromancy, against uh, consulting spirits etc., etc., magic in general. It's hard to explain why you would need those prohibitions if you weren't, if there weren't actually something out there to prohibit. In the story of Saul going to the, the witch of Endor, uh, obviously Saul in the story has already extirpated as much of that sort of necromancy as he can from the land, according to the the Old Testament, and yet he's able to find this woman. I mean, everybody kind of—it's an open secret. Oh yeah, you need a well, if you need a a person to raise somebody from the dead. We know a lady down in Endor, <laughs> and they go and they go right to her. They don't—they don't—they don't have to look around. So, if you look at the if you look at the official report of any religion, nothing much is going on. If you look at popular culture, on the other hand, a lot is going on. I mean, how many Christians are reading horoscopes? I mean, there must be a lot of them because horoscopes, you know, are pretty much a feature of every newspaper. 
every magazine we have call-in shows you know where you can call in and get your get your cards read and what have you we have uh, palm readers and we have tarot card readers practically every six blocks here in Sacramento where I'm living there are probably nearly as many of them as there are churches so clearly something's going on on the popular level that is not reflected in in the official history or the official view of the religion so people are living on two different levels and it's quite possible that Jesus or anybody else was at least accused of having power because he raised a ghost since John was a popular person and was now conveniently dead and somebody was asking where is Jesus getting all this power it would it would occur to Herod that how oh, he raised the ghost of John the Baptist and that's what's working in him so but it connotes that, that John had power to begin with it would assume, you would have to assume that that John had powers to begin with or at least was a popular person who had charismatic power at least very at the very minimum the power to draw very large crowds who went out to hear him preach uh, so one way or the other John was clearly a powerful individual uh, he was an apocalyptic individual who was preaching you know the axes laying at the root of the tree watch out you know the end is nigh the fact that Jesus went to John to be baptized suggests that John was a powerful individual. Why would Jesus feel the need to go get baptized by John? And I think that when the Christians were confronted, the gospel writers were confronted with this fact that Jesus was apparently started out as a disciple of John the Baptist, suddenly they, and probably even after his death, John probably had followers he probably had people who still you know believed in him who still respected him uh, likely right in Jerusalem or right in uh, in Judea here's another Jewish group because the Christians didn't start out as Christians they started out as a Jewish group in Jerusalem uh, they have followers of John the Baptist to contend with how do you explain to followers of John the Baptist that Jesus was was more powerful, that he was the one that was actually foretold, not John, that John was just the forerunner, that John's just the announcer who opens the show, so to speak, and that Jesus is the main act? Well, you downplay Jesus. I mean, you downplay John, and you elevate Jesus at the same time. It's a situational response which is basically what everything in the Gospels uh, is, is a situational response. It's a response to what's happening at the time that Gospel is written, what the controversies are, what, what individuals the, the Gospel writer is hoping to address, both supporters and critics. Well, let's talk about Matthew eleven eighteen. 18. Um, there, uh, Jesus said, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say that he has a demon. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in your paper, you contrast that with uh, the passage where in Luke where Jesus is accused of being in league with Beelzebub. Um, how, um, I had never thought about that passage about him being called a demon, and then you you quote Jennings and Liu who say that 
in some sense, what they're really accusing Jesus is, is um, being a commanding officer of, of the, the power of Beelzebub. Or in other parts of your paper, you say that, that he was using Beelzebub um, for his purposes, that Jesus had like a, some type of stronghold on Beelzebub. Um, what, can you explain that for our public? Like, uh, yeah, the, the writer Lucian, who, who is extremely skeptical about exorcism and about magic in general, talked about driving out a demon with the help of a more powerful demon or to quote Lucian, he called it driving out one nail with a bigger nail. Um, when the church historian Eusebius got around to talking about some of uh, Jesus' competitors, he talked about them in terms of using a more a powerful demon to drive out a less powerful demon. So, this was this was a common accusation or a common metaphor in the case of, of Lucian driving out one nail with the help of another. The thing the thinking is again going back to that common denominator, everything happens because of spirits. If you're gonna get rid of a demon, the way to do it is to enlist a more powerful spirit, which in the case of people critical of Jesus, it would have been logical to say he has Beelzebub, in other words, the, the Jewish leaders who come down from Jerusalem to see what's going on in response to Jesus' miracles. And their conclusion is he has Beelzebub, in other words, he has a very powerful demon, he has the ruler of the demons, and it's using the ruler of the demons to drive out lesser demons. Then when Jesus points out that people are saying of John, he has a demon, why would they say John has a demon if John was not doing any kind of powerful works? They would be using that to explain miracles, wouldn't they? Isn't that how you explain miracles? You have a spirit. You have a spirit helper. It's either the spirit of God or it's the spirit of Satan. But you can't perform miracles on your own. You have to have help from the other side. So if there was an accusation out there rolling around that John had a demon, it would imply by saying that, that John was doing something so powerful and so uncanny that there would seem no other explanation than to say John has a demon. Then when Jesus comes along, and begins to do something even more powerful, more uncanny, the explanation would be, well, he has a more powerful demon. In other words, Beelzebub. So he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So to have Beelzebub in this case, and there are actually uh, apologetic scholars who claim, well, see, they're, they're accusing Jesus of being, uh, of being possessed. So no, you know, as Kraling pointed out, that's not at all what they're, what they're accusing him of. People who are possessed don't control demons. Demons control them. It's, it's, it's actually quite simple. It's, it was very simple to the more literal minds of the first century. If somebody had, had power over someone else, then, then, they, then obviously they had a higher rank. They were higher up in the, in the pecking order 
which is why, you know, um, in that article that you cited, when Jesus talks to the centurion, and the centurion tells him, I want you to, to cure my, my servant, my boy, however you want to translate that the word, Jesus says, well, I'll come and heal him. And the, and the Roman centurion, obviously a Gentile, says, well, you know, he understands, or Matthew understands, that Jesus can't come into a Gentile home without becoming unclean ceremonially. So he says, well, just say the word. And then he explains, because I, I tell people, I tell the men under my command where to go, and they go, and when to come, and they come. They follow my orders. So he's assuming that Jesus has control of spirits. All he has to do is tell them, do this, and they go do it, which is exactly what we find in the magical papyri, basically word for word. It's almost as if it were cribbed right out of the magical papyri. And for all we know, it could have been. I mean, the person who wrote this may have been familiar with this whole magical technique. It wasn't like some kind of state secret. And they could have written the technique in there, not even necessarily deliberately, just knowing that, okay, this is how things are in the spirit realm. This is how we do that. And they would just produce what is a very widely known cultural norm, a cultural story. Are you familiar with the, the background of Beelzebub? Um, in the book uh, Essentials of Demonology by Edward Langton, he talks about how uh, it was the, the local deity of the, the town of Ekron, and then he mentions in the book of Judges there's a king that um, that goes and, and sends a servant, or he goes to find healing after falling from a ladder from that deity. And the question remains, um, after the return from Babylon, uh, there's really... Um, I guess you you might find sources about this, but there's really no um, no evidence of idolatry, or uh, I guess you can say when when people were involved with the Greco-Romans uh, during the the Seleucid uh, kingdom and, and that. But th this idea of Jews um, being chastised by God because of idolatry is not a common thing to happen. So another interpretation would be that, in, that it, they are talking about demons, but what they're really talking about is that he is using the power of another deity and that he's, um, he's somehow um, a, a pagan or he's, um, he's performing miracles by the god of Ekron that ends up being Beelzebub. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, not, not specifically. I mean, if you look at... Yeah, the, the only response I would have to that is that if you would look at the uh, the magical papyri and other similar texts, the the world of magic is it is intensively syncretic, so that people pick up the names of all kinds of deities, um, the Lord of Hosts, all of these typical titles of Yahweh from the Old Testament find their way into the magical papyri, some of them in fairly corrupted forms. And you also find lists of deities, Greco-Roman deities, all sorts of 
deities, the various names attributed, the epithets attributed to, uh, to the God of the Old Testament, all kind of thrown into this salad. The idea, I suppose, being that the more names you put in there, the more chances you have of getting a magical hit because the name is how you control it. If you know the real name of the demon of a god, then you use it for magical use. It's available to you. It's like a lock and a key. You have the key, you open it, which I think is probably one of the major reasons that the Tetragrammaton was not supposed to be pronounced. It was because if you could pronounce it, then bingo, it's yours. You can summon up Yahweh, you can control Yahweh because you have the name. Um, so tracing these names of various demons back, well, first of all, presupposes a number of things. It presupposes that the material is being accurately reported in the Gospels, first of all. It presumes that the Gospels are being accurately transmitted to us through the process of copying, which is an open question, because most of the Gospels that we have, the first full manuscripts of the Gospels, we don't have until the early 4th century. So you've got a lapse here of at least a hundred years before we have very much evidence as to what was even in the Gospels. And the people copying the Gospels are not aware, apparently, that they are copying, quote-unquote, Scripture. They're altering the Gospels according to authorities like Eusebius, according to writers like Origen, they're making changes in the Gospels in response to criticism of the Gospels, which is probably why, like I mentioned, there are no exorcism stories in John and why the whole uh, raising the John the Baptist changes, each story changes from Mark to Matthew to Luke. And it's not mentioned at all in the Gospel of John. So it, it's kind of hard to to be specific about where some of these ideas are coming from. Then we also have the problem that only the tiniest fraction of all the possible material that we could have had in the first century has survived to the 21st century, survived unchanged. So we're making, when you, when you look at the Gospels and you read these things as a literal transcription of something that happened you encounter a lot of ifs, ands, buts in between. Which is why, like I, I keep saying, the, the reconstruction of these events is extremely tenuous, it is speculative, and very hard to get dogmatic about. My argument is that based on everything that we know since Carl Kraling published uh, refresh my memory, I don't remember, was it 1920s? I, if you've got the thing in front of you, I don't, I don't have it in front of me. But in all of the stuff that has come to light since the 1920s, that are, all that material argues that Carl Kraling was probably as close to right about this as anybody's going to get. Because uh, 
You know, whenever um, we hear um, scholars or researchers bring up issues like these, it always goes back to some of the, the so-called accusations of the Jews against Jesus, such as, you know, witchcraft or uh, in league with, with, with Satan. And, you know, th there's contention if, if Jews even believe in Satan or the devil. And then, and then people um, finding things in the, in the old versions of the Talmud or in the legends of the Jews and then running with them. So, um, so the, the real question is, um, this idea of, of Jesus being either possibly a necromancer or a magician or a sorcerer, are these, um, independent ideas or do they come from, um, these accusations that the people of his time did not believe him and thought that whatever he was doing was, uh, from somewhere else because, I feel that it could fuel uh, more anti-Semitism. And if you look into some of the websites that are out there, uh, they're always looking for reasons to attack the Jewish community, including uh, giving people reasons to doubt the message of Jesus. Yeah, I I appreciate your point there. but And, and I would say unequivocally and, and categorically to anybody listening to this program that pagan writers were very clear about making accusations of magic against Jesus and the early Christians. I mean, it, it's basically every pagan critic that has survived that any of their writings have survived, make the accusation specifically of magic against Jesus nearly Christians. I mean, Celsus, Porphyry, Julian, the so-called apostate, all of these writers were quite specific about accusing early Christians of sorcery. I mean, that, that's, that's basically universal. And, and Christian apologists for the first three or four centuries, are constantly having to defend uh, their religion against being compared to magicians and to sorcerers. So to the extent that the Jewish people identified Jesus as a sorcerer or magician, they were hardly alone. In fact, they were, they were definitely a minority, all things considered. But if you, if you think about it, now going back again to my common denomination, denominator of everything is done by spirits, if you are going to suggest that somebody did miracles and yet, because nobody, nobody claims that Jesus didn't do any miracles in the ancient world, his Jewish detractors, his many pagan detractors, never claim that Jesus did none of this stuff. None of them claim that, oh, this never happened. They all claim that it was done by magic because that's the only available that's the only available theory, right? Everything has to be done by spirits. So if a person you don't like, you don't approve of, you don't agree with is doing something that appears magical, then it has to be by a spirit. If it's something that you don't like, it's an evil spirit. If something you approve of, it's the spirit of God. It's basically that simple. 
but yeah, I, I you know I appreciate your concern there, and it's quite likely that that Jewish writers had to go through their their material and do some you know deletion of accusations, since that during the Middle Ages a lot of their writings came under the uh, under the view of the Inquisition and and similar uh, bodies. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that the, the Jewish people could have said lots more about what they thought about Jesus, <laughs> given an opportunity to speak freely. Well, an, a new thing that has been coming up is this idea of a mythical Jesus. And they'll even say that there was other figures that were either uh, put together um, to create a, a, a messianic figure uh, sometimes they even quote the Talmud because they, in the Talmud is is a very complicated work and it has some things that seem to be polem, polemical against Christians, but it's kind of garbled up and and sometimes they don't get the story uh, to be the same as the Christian narrative. So there's there's different characters and from different uh, periods and they kind of mix up the the stories. So they'll they'll look at that and they'll say, well. Maybe that's what happened in the New Testament. Maybe there was different messianic leaders that um, that people were attracted to, and then after the destruction of the temple, they decided to create this religion to either appease the Romans or to spread some type of message, and they developed this uh, mythical character with all these powers and all these abilities. Do you see any merit in that theory, and can we can anybody? Uh, dismiss the historical data or or see it as, as you know, people are debating about it, someone that never existed. Um, is that even possible? Uh, I really hesitated to jump into that, but uh, following the release of my book, Jesus the Sorcerer, uh, one of the major figures in the mythicist uh, movement, uh, Richard Carrier, actually mentioned my book and Morton Smith's book and, and dismissed them as, as a completely faulty interrogation of the text, etc., etc., in spite of the fact that the idea that Jesus was a magician or understood to be a magician is actually pretty widespread in the technical literature on New Testament studies. Most people are not aware of that, but there were books Coming, there were articles coming out as far back as the 1920s about the accusations of Jesus uh, being a sorcerer. And the first um, full-length book that I know of by Hull came out in the 19, early 1970s. And there have been a steady stream of books since then that have examined that question exhaustively. I've done three books myself on that subject generally. Um, the whole idea of mythicism is not is not new. It's about a hundred years old. Uh, it started in France. Uh, the idea in what I call hard mythicism is that Jesus and and the whole story of the New Testament, everything about it, was basically made up out of whole cloth from similar material from the Greco-Roman religions. And then it was kind of peppered and salted with uh, quotations from the Old Testament 
to make it look like it was Jewish, basically, in background. But it was basically derived from dying and rising gods and, you know, atonement and all that sort of thing that were that was already present out, of, out in the Greco-Roman world, Egyptian world, uh, generally. I find that thesis to be almost certainly wrong. Uh, I finally broke down, took about a month or so, and wrote a piece that's up on Scribd uh, that that is basically pretty much open access to anybody called playing hide and seek with Jesus. I take what I call the soft mythicist position, which is typical of virtually everybody in mainstream New Testament studies, is that, for example, the birth narratives, the infancy narratives of Matthew and Luke are almost certainly completely fable made up from nothing or, or close to nothing. I, there's no reason why a peasant coming from some tiny village in Galilee, there's no reason no, that anyone would know anything about his childhood or even care what year he was born or what the circumstances were. So this is all backfilled after Jesus becomes the Christ. People are making this up and people are making up infancy gospels all the way into the second, third century. So that's not surprising. I consider that probably, oh, 50% at least of the material in the New Testament relative to Jesus is either taken out of context, probably because the context wasn't even known at the time or remembered at the time the gospel was written. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of just made up stuff fable, if you want to call it legend, whatever, in the Gospels. But I find it very hard to believe that uh, that Jesus of Nazareth was not a real person. Uh, if you read, again, I, I would just tell the, the interested listener, go back, find Josephus' War of the Jews, and just read it. Don't read it for the material about Jesus specifically, because there are there are some passages in Josephus that allegedly mention Jesus and describe him, and those passages have been debated back and forth and back and forth for centuries about whether they're genuine or whether they're interpolations that were just stuck in there by a Christian copyist where they came from. Just ignore that. You don't need it at all. Just read the whole Wars of the Jews about the political, messianic, prophetic, charismatic, whatever you want to call them, figures that popped up in Judea and in, and in Galilee during the Roman occupation, what they said, what they did, what happened to them, and, and John the Baptist and Jesus completely fit in with those figures. I mean, they, there would be nothing surprising about the career of John the Baptist or Jesus in the light of Josephus' Jewish wars. I mean, they, they would have been almost a cliché. They would have been so common that the Romans were just nailing them up like shingles to get rid of them. So, so nothing about it, the, the claims of miracles, the promise of a kingdom, 
none of that would have been exceptional or strange or unusual. I mean, that, that was just the grist for the mill of a, of a people who were being ground down and immiserated and, and basically subjugated by a foreign power. And, and that was the religious and political response, not that there was in the Jewish mind any difference between politics and religion, as you know. So, yeah, I, I, I'm aware of that. The guys that, that put this out, Robert Price is one person who has is, who is advocated this position. Richard Carrier, as I mentioned, is another. I find the position of, of total mythicism, what I call hard mythicism, I find that extremely, extremely hard to believe. And I would emphasize to your listeners that no matter how much press that gets, that is an extreme a very, very tiny minority opinion among even skeptical people who have studied the New Testament. I don't think I can't think of a recognized New Testament historian off the top of my head who believes that or has who has advocated for it. And I've and I'm fairly familiar with, with most of the mainstream New Testament historians and their work. Well, like you said about necromancy and other um, magical stuff, that it um, the reason it's brought up is because it was happening. Like what I find hard to believe is that someone would go to so much work to describe the the territory where he lived, the people that were there, the authorities, the certain individuals. That I know there's problems with with some figures that maybe they weren't real or not, but it it just seems like a very elaborate story to make out of thin air. Uh, and, and then the question is, for what purpose? There's another book that claims that it was Josephus who was hired by um, the Caesar at that time to come up with the story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I find that. Yeah, I find that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's to me, that's a real reach. But look at legends generally. I mean, look at the look at the the incompatible infancy narratives of Matthew and Luke. They're full of details, full of details. Who went to who? Who said what? Where they came from? What they brought with them? What they did later? Da 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 da. Uh, the like I said, the I think that the the mainstream opinion on the infancy narratives. It, in New Testament studies is that they are at least a minimum 90% legendary. That, n that none of that stuff happened. Or you take Luke, you know, the angel appears to Zechariah when he was uh, serving as a, his round as a priest in the temple, and he said this, and he said this about his wife, and then this happened and something else happened and then she said all this stuff about Mary and the baby jumped in the womb and da 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 and all this stuff is I mean this is this is all legendary I mean who would know anything about the son of a of a manual laborer in in Nazareth which is a city so small that there are some people even dispute the archaeological claim to have even found it. I mean, Jesus comes 
is a man of, of almost no importance who originally comes from a village of absolutely no importance, and yet somebody was writing all this down about his infancy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, to believe that is borderline crazy. But having said that, the accounts are full of color and emotion and, and detail that for, for centuries, Christians accepted as just, that's history. That's, yeah, that's exactly how it was. I don't, apparently no one ever asked themselves, who would have recorded this history? Where would this history have possibly, you know, been sitting around like a photo album or something, uh, you know, a diary? If you consider that very likely the people of that era, that that ninety percent of the minimum were illiterate, uh, who who would have been jotting this down? Was Mary like taking notes or something, or was it you know an angel that was saving this on tape? And then you know when the came time, seventy years down the road for the Gospels to be written, suddenly this all appears and it's all just all conveniently there. Or did they just make it up? Look at any legend. Look at the Greek and the Roman legends. The Egyptian legends are full of all kinds of interesting detail and particulars and, you know, names of people and places and exact conversations. Think about the conversation that, that the Jewish leaders are having in the Praetorium with Pilate right before the Passover. A Jew couldn't go in the Praetorium. None of Jesus' followers would have gone into the Praetorium, into the into the presence of Gentiles, made themselves ceremonially unclean for seven days and not been able to, to do Passover, right? So how did they know all this conversation that supposedly took place between Jesus and Pilate and the Jewish leaders and Pilate and all the rest of this? You know, where did they get all this information? How did they know that? Well, it was a court stenographer, you know, writing it down, and then it became public record. I mean, when you look at the, the, the where this information could possibly come from, you hit a wall. It's like, how would the people who wrote this down 70 to 100 years later, how could they possibly know he's, the, the word-for-word, you know, content of these conversations? It's just simple things like that, simple questions like that, basic stuff that, that, basic, that, that makes the typical New Testament scholar who is looking at these documents critically step back and say, okay, wait a minute, you know, a lot of this is not totally is not totally adding up. So with that in mind, how do we discern what could be possible to have happened and what was uh, fabricated? You have to go with probability. I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty easy question for a historian. Any historian will tell you, you go with probability. What is the most likely thing to have happened? So when you hear hoofbeats, you look for horses, not zebras. Right. So what is the most likely explanation for this for this story, for this document? Is there a historical core, which I believe there is? I believe there's we don't know much. 
we probably know for sure, if you want to use that terminology, maybe a half dozen things about Jesus. That, that we could pretty much say, yeah, this, this is very historically probable. Nobody can prove it. I mean, if you look at the if you look at evidence from the past, you've got basically three lines of evidence, as I see it. You've got forensic evidence. You can go back and you can dig up a body. And even when you dig up the body, it doesn't tell you anything more than maybe the sex and the age, and maybe the 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 state of their nutrition, unless you dig up a body an intact mummy from an Egyptian tomb, and you have the inscriptions and you have everything else, then you can pretty much determine this is that person. In other words, this person existed. This is forensic evidence. You might even be able to extract DNA from that mummy, compare it to other mummies, and say, yeah, these people were actually related. You, could, you would have forensic evidence that you could take to a modern court of law and you could say, yes, we can identify this person by name. This is this person. We have none of that for anybody in the New Testament. Nobody. And we never will. We will never find any forensic evidence for Jesus. Shroud of Turin or anything else, it's not there. So what are the other? Evidences. Well, we have textual evidence, which is what we have for nearly everybody that we know about in the New Testament. The evidence is textual evidence. It's on paper somewhere. And then it was copied, copied, recopied, and it finally some of it made it down to the present day. That's the kind of evidence you have. And then the other kind of, you have what is called spolia in archaeology. You have archaeological evidence. You have inscriptions. You have actual tombs. You have monuments. You have whatever. Because of spolia, we know from an inscription that there, yes, there was a Pontius Pilate. There was actually an inscription made during his life, and they recovered it. It, was, it had been built into another building. Somebody had used it for building material. That's how important they considered it. But yeah, we have that. But proving that there was a Pontius Pilate doesn't prove anything about whether or not there was a Jesus, much less anything about the New Testament. It proves nothing whatsoever about the truth claims of the New Testament. So looking at this evidence, you have to go the way any typical historian would, and you go by what probably happened based on what we know happened to other people in that era, what probably happened based on what we know happens all the time and supposedly has always happened and always will happen. We pretty are pretty sure the sun, regardless of what Joshua says, the sun never stood still, which would involve basically stopping the rotation of the earth, okay, which we're pretty, pretty sure that never happened. And we are pretty sure it never will happen for many reasons. And, and we, you can look at miracles in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament on the same basis. Has that ever happened in our experience? Do we expect that it ever would happen given what we know about physics, about natural history, about anatomy, physiology, what have you? What are the odds? And that's all you can do 
historically, you can say the odds are overwhelmingly that such and such a thing never happened or the odds are fairly good that this happened. And on that basis, how much, how much of a dogmatic argument can you possibly make? So when you talk about Lucian and other critics of Christianity um, by rebutting the story of Jesus, is it, um, were they fighting ghosts or, or shadows? Like, just because someone comes and says, um, my Savior was born 200 years ago and he brought salvation to all humanity, does, does that give enough credibility that, that that was a real thing? Or is it just a group of people who could have made up uh, a faith based on, on loose ideas? Well, there's no way to know, but I can tell you that uh, there were all kinds of savior religions and savior cults all over the Greco-Roman Mediterranean world. I mean, saviors, prophets, visionaries, a dime a dozen. I mean, there were, there were literally hundreds of them. Lucian writes about a guy named Peregrinus Proteus who briefly, briefly became a Christian and kind of milked Christianity for what he could get from it and then ended his career by throwing himself into essentially a bonfire at one of the Olympics and self-immolated and then predictably within hours was supposedly seen walking around all dressed in white. Yeah, I mean, this. none of these stories about saviors and savior cults and savior figures would have been at all uncommon any time in the Greco-Roman world. I mean, the Caesars were supposedly capable of, of healing people by touch. I mean, it, I mean, everybody who was anybody had these you know, these mystical powers. So why wouldn't Jesus? And Lucian is basically skeptical of all of them. He has a, a delightful story called The Lover of Lies that talks about a symposium where people are sitting around telling ghost stories and magical healing and all this sort of thing. And it's interesting to go down through it and read it and compare it with material from the New Testament. I mean, it overlaps again and again. He even mentions three categories of people who are likely to become ghosts. I'll give your audience just a second to think, what could those be? Well, it would be a man who was crucified, or a man who was beheaded, or a man who hanged himself. <laughs> so basically Jesus, John the Baptist, and Judas. <laughs> fit, those, fit those categories, right? So it's been speculated by me, including others, that maybe Lucian was familiar with one of the Gospels, and maybe he was having a little fun at Christian expense. Maybe by the time he wrote, enough people had heard the story of the Gospels that when Lucian did a public reading or a public performance of The Lover of Lies, everybody kind of, <laughs> you know, it was an, it was a, an insider's joke that was shared by so many people in the community that like today you can, you can go to Saturday night live and somebody can make a reference and you get who they're talking about without them having to name it. Are you familiar with the idea that part of the, 
the concept of Jesus being the Son of God and like begotten by God uh, comes from um, some type of polemic against the Caesars that uh, since um, Julius Caesar had declared himself God, that then there was like the I guess the Jewish version of that, and now you have someone who's actually um, taking the divine right of the kings of of Israel and Judah to the next level, where now you have someone who's actually representing the true God as compared to someone being uh, divine divino filus from the from the Roman side. Actually, if you read the New Testament closely, Jesus becomes the Son of God on four different occasions, depending on who you're reading. If you're reading Luke, he becomes the Son of God at his conception. If you're reading Mark, he becomes the Son of God, it's announced, when he's baptized. By the time you get to Paul... Paul says distinctly in Romans, he was declared the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. If you read the Gospel of John, Jesus has always existed because he's part of the Godhood. I don't know where we get Godhood. It basically means, I mean, the Godhead, it basically means Godhood. It means belonging to God, the group the Trinitarians call God. Uh, so even the New Testament shows that there is an evolution in thinking about when Jesus becomes a son of God. The later you go in terms of Gospels, the earlier Jesus becomes a son of God. So working backward from John, he becomes a, he's always been the son of God. He was there at the beginning. So he's always been that. If you go to Paul, it happened at his resurrection, you go to Mark, it happened as baptism. You go to Luke, it happened when it was conceived. <laughs> you forgot one. He becomes uh, the son of God when he's uh, crucified in the book of Acts. He's, uh, he's adopted as the son of God. So, I mean, the New Testament itself doesn't even have a consistent picture of when Jesus is the Son of God, which is why, as I, as I mentioned before, this is all ad hoc theology. This is all being made up in response to where believers are at the moment these books are written, what their understanding is at that particular time. So you've got a bunch of little snapshots that shows a progression of ideas. So yeah, I mean, you could speculate endlessly about this, and believe me, people have. If you go back through the technical literature, you could take, say, the, the most fundamental, outstanding religious journals about Judaism and Christianity, maybe the, the most, the top 10 or 12, and go back from the beginning of their publication, in some cases a little over 100 years ago, all the way to the present, and read back through them, scan them, and I guarantee you, you will find the most amazing difference of opinion and differences of interpretation and fights that have gone on for 100 years over maybe just one verse. 
are people actually becoming rather bitter and and exercised about what the meaning of this verse is? And then, like I said, it's all speculative. You have no way of going back and asking anybody who is who knew where it came from, what it meant. Well, in the last uh, minutes of our show, um, I wanted to ask you about in the in the Gospel of Mark. There's a passage where Jesus is being confronted by uh, the Sadducees who are part of the Sanhedrin. And there's this question about him coming in clouds of heaven and sitting at, at the right hand of the of the power. And they were saying that the power is, is, um, is kind of like a Galilean uh, way of saying God, that is kind of like a respectful way um, in, in the Jewish um, um, religion. But there, there's this idea of, are they truly uh, accusing him of blasphemy for saying that? Or are they just um, kind of, uh, if you were to build a case against Jesus, and if, you know, the first thing is that, that he was a necromancer, and the second one was that he was in league with Beelzebub, and then the you keep building it up, and in Mark you don't see that, that conflict as much as you see it in, in the book of John, but... Uh, what was the the final outcome of that type of conflict that he had with the authorities? Did you see it that was it building up uh, as him claiming to be uh, related to God in some way in the first gospel, or is it more of a of a leadership uh, and authority issue? No, no, yeah, I, I don't. I cannot imagine that Jesus, the Jewish person, who said that if you disobey any part of the law, you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. To me, that sounds like a completely Jewish, basically Pharisaic position to take. I mean, that's, uh, to me, that makes perfect sense, that Jesus is 100% orthodox, what we would call Jewish, observant, through and through, completely, and if you start from there, then Jesus claiming to be God would be nuts. Okay, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. And if you look to through the Gospels to the um, the passages typically quoted to prove Jesus' divinity, I think it's very easy to demonstrate that there is a theological progression. There's an evolution of thinking that basically ends up kind of manifesting itself as what would be called apotheosis from from the standpoint of the Roman emperors. And it's not so much that the emperor, per se, became uh, a god. It was the idea of the, the noumen, or the spirit of the emperor as head of the Roman state, was divine which was, again, totally in keeping with the understanding of rulership basically all over the world, right? So, yeah, and looking at that, I, again, it, it's very hard to come down with a, with a hard and fast opinion on it. But, uh, but I would say that, that if, you, if you look at it, it, it's, it evolves until finally, by the time of John, Jesus is still is still kind of 
not in, in Greek it's very hard well it's hard to explain it in to capture in English what John 1 verse 1 says in Greek but the I think the general belief of the hardcore grammarians is that John is not quite saying that Jesus was God but not quite either just using the adjective that would be translated divine so he's he's pushing the envelope almost to the point of saying yeah Jesus is God uh, and then there are some other parts of the of the Gospels and in Acts where based on the grammar it could be that that they're calling Jesus God. By the time you get to Ignatius, who writes seven letters that we still have um, in the early first century, he is definitely calling Jesus God in the flesh. He he talks about Jesus' blood as being the blood of God. I mean, by that time, the 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 identification is like one hundred percent. You see Jesus, you've seen God. Period. And the last thing I I became kind of um, aware of the idea that the Church of the Nativity um, is the same place where uh, Syrians and I guess people in ancient Palestine worship the god Tammuz, and then there's a connection be between Tammuz and uh, Adonis and and other deities. Um, it was kind of eerie to to hear about how the women would lament his his passing by wailing, and that he was born from a myrtle tree. And well, I guess that was Mitra's. I don't know. I get confused because that's another case that is built that that is a mythical Jesus because there are connections or similarities from from other deities. But is the Tamas ones uh, one to be taken seriously that that there was some type of influence, at least of the Shrine of the Nativity and where it was placed? Yeah, that's hard to say. I I, I wouldn't put a lot of weight on it, quite frankly. Um, I, I believe it's been pretty well established but a lot that a lot of Christian shrines and churches are built on uh, pagan holy sites. The Vatican is actually built built on the top of an old pagan cemetery, which a lot of people don't know. I didn't know it until fairly recently. Um, yeah, I mean, if if you're going to if you're going to displace paganism in the minds of common people people who are not into theological argument, people who cannot read and write, how are you going to do that from a missionary point of view? Well, you're going to take their sacred sites and either destroy them, which is why so many, so many statues and what have you from the ancient world are defaced and broken up, or you're going to supplant them almost literally by building your temple on top of their temple. Because as you probably are aware, a lot of temples in, in the ancient world were the sites of previous temples. So that they, there was, you know, temple 1.1 and 1.2, and, and they kept building the temple to the same God in the same place because the place itself was considered to be holy. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic.
Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page. We would like to thank Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance.